My guests this week on the Root Simple Podcast are Stacy Malkin, co-director of U.S. Right to Know, and a return visit from beekeeper Terry Oxford of Urban Bee San Francisco. The topics are the relationship between chemical companies and academia, as well as the impact of chemicals on pollinators. Before we get to the discussion, I want to thank our Patreon subscribers Dan F., Heather E., Lynn G., K., Scott G., Kellyan, Stephanie L., Erica R., Kelton M., Kyle P., Nicholas H., Garden Fork, and supporters Michael W., Dutch Girl, and Johan. If you'd like to become a patron and make an ongoing pledge to support our podcast and blog, you can find a link in the show notes and on the right side of our blog at rootsimple.com. We now join Stacy Malkin and Terry Oxford. Uh, Stacy, great to have you on, and Terry. Thanks so much, Eric. Glad Thanks. to be here. Great. This is kind of a first for the Root Simple podcast of having a... Um, Terry is going to help with the interview here, and we're having uh, two people remotely by Skype, so hopefully the technical gods will be with us. But um, <laughs> anyway, so Terry was a, a guest on the podcast two episodes ago. Uh, but Stacy, uh, why don't you say just a little something about uh, who you are and, um, and what you do? Sure. My name is Stacy Malkin, and I'm a co-director of U.S. Right to Know, which is a public watchdog group. We've been investigating um, the behind-the-scenes influence that chemical industry and big food industry has on um, universities, on what scientists are studying about what they say publicly, um, how the media covers these issues, and also how uh, things play out politically. So we've re- we're, we're relatively new. We started just a couple years ago. Um, and in those couple years, we've amassed a huge amount of documents. I would say probably thousands of documents that look get at what's going on behind the scenes with these collaborations between corporations and scientists and media. So I'm happy to have a chance to talk about that today. Great. And we'll get into some of the specifics on those documents. But first, Terry, I want to toss it out to you, Terry. It was your suggestion, and you, and you brought Stacy uh, uh, to my attention. So I want to thank you for that. But um, why why uh, did you want me to have Stacy on the, the show today? As a beekeeper in San Francisco, my concern has grown largely to include all pollinators, birds, natives, dragonflies, any sort of insect that's beneficial that is dying out. And the tie-in that my work uh, really relates to is neonicotinoid pesticides, which came onto the market at exactly the same time that the decline started to happen. So one of the things that I've noticed since I've been talking about this, which has been almost eight years now, uh, is the circling of the wagons that I get when I talk to beekeeper associations. um, uh, And it it typically, the circling of the wagons typically defends the university system. And I'll just specifically say UC Davis. So that, that circling of the wagons really, you know, sort of pricked up my ears and made me look into it uh, deeper And I found something that just to me now seems like, you know, of course, it was a big duh moment that the universities, in my opinion, are really, really influenced by the pesticide corporations, Bayer, Syngenta, Dow. They're the ones that have the money that are spending, uh, that can spend it on research around bees. 
which translates to all pollinators. When I say the word bee, I'm speaking about pollinators at this point because they're all dying of neonic poisoning and other toxins too, but specifically neonics are, are probably one of the worst. Anyway, um, so the university system is very soft on the subject of neonics, and that specifically goes to the apiculture departments uh, of UC Davis. They really backpedal, they apologize, they defend, they essentially run interference for the pesticide corporations, and they have really followed through on what I see is a, a drumbeat of mites, that mites are the problem. Mites are problem number one, enemy number one. You just do a simple mite count on any of the research or any of the discussions from most of the apiculture department of UC Davis, and the word mite pops out 20 to one as compared to the word pesticide or neonics. All they talk about is mites. So to me, I just thought there's definitely a tie-in to the universities. They need the research money. Their entire industry of the re of the universities is uh, dependent on on these industries. They've got buildings that the industry built. They've got uh, bee centers built by Bayer. This is around the world now. So, like, I, you know, it's just so cynical to me. And so when I found Stacy, I just immediately recognized that they were that, that US right to know was onto something uh, in and so she's going to follow up on that. But the problem is uh, uh, like to tie it into your listeners concerns about um, bees. I just want everybody to know the way that systemic neonicotinoids work and I just call them systemics or neonics. Neonics are seven to 10,000 times stronger than DDT. That's the poison. But it's really the poison's delivery system that is the major problem to pollinators. The systemic part of it means that the poison is in every system of the plant. So it is delivered through the pollen, the nectar, and the gutation. Gutation is water droplets that ooze out of the end of leaves or come out on the stems. And pollinators drink that. That's a moisture source for them. So they really need all of those things. And gutation has been studied extensively in Europe, and it's, it's one of the most toxic forms of, of how this poison comes out. But the other thing about systemic neonics is the persistence. They can last for years. So I had some trees tested as part of a test in San Francisco in the Bay Area. And we found trees that had been planted up to four years before. So pre-treated at the tree nursery that were way over any limit to be safe to any pollinator. Deadly, deadly trees. So my concern, you know, I don't have meadows, I don't have agriculture in the city, and neither does any other city, but what I do have is, is what I call sky meadows. You know, meadows in the sky, these trees are capable of producing up to a quarter to a half acre of blossoms, that's nutrition. So for the, us to be planting trees that are pre-treated with these poisons that last for years. Well, I just lost my mind. So that's a campaign I'm working on. But you go ahead, Stacey, talk about the universities. 
Well, so, right. And just to add to what Terry was saying, bees are, of course, essential for our food system. And so protecting bees is in pollinators is just something that I think so many people get at a gut level is crucial for the future of our food and our ability to be able to feed ourselves. Um, now, what we see in the media coverage of these issues is a lot of uh, information about the mites, as Terry was saying, and sort of this classic tactic of shift the conversation, kind of manufacture doubt about the science. That was really the the playbook that the tobacco industry ran on for so many years, as we all know that story. You know, when faced with science, just confuse the issues, manufacture doubt, and the tobacco executives were actually caught at one point saying outright, doubt is our product. You know, this is what we need to do is manufacture doubt about science that raises concerns about our profitable products. And so with the pesticides and the bees, we hear lots of um, discussion about the mites. It's a, it's a, you know, many problems, maybe pesticides is one small part. And this is often how the issue has been covered by leading reporters who really know a lot about science uh, because they're hearing from so many academics and professors that that is what they should focus on. So the issues get very confused and people are left with feeling like, well, there's really nothing we can do um, to protect the bees. Meanwhile, there's a lot of evidence that shows when you eliminate or reduce the neonics, bee populations are coming back. Uh, Europe has banned them for some time, and countries like Italy, where they've outlawed them, you know, the bee populations are coming back. So that's the good news. Um, but we need to get serious about public policy that restricts these chemicals that are hurting bees and, of course, getting into our food. <laughs> um, what we found at U.S. Right to Know, and we started looking at universities in particular, really because nobody else was doing it in the, with the research tactics that we had in mind, which was basically to look closer at what some of the professors were doing behind the scenes. We suspected they were working with corporations, um, and it's turned out that we've, we've uncovered a lot of evidence that that was, in fact, the case. We've filed Freedom of Information Act requests uh, at many universities, and these are publicly funded, you know, taxpayer-funded universities. We are paying for these schools to exist, and they are supposed to be working in the interest of the public good. What we're finding is that many, as public funding has been cut and as corporate funding has become more important to these schools, of course, that money does not come with no strings attached. Um, companies like Monsanto, Dow, Bayer, Syngenta are really so influential on these university campuses in terms of what research gets conducted, how academics talk about it. And this is really a significant problem in, in the U.S. You know, I'm here in Berkeley where we have um, a $500 million Dow building, a $100 million Bayer building. The city is being built up with massive infrastructure that's being paid for by corporations that have a stake in what UC Berkeley says about um, science and what research gets done. And so this is this is the environment we're living in in 2017. And UC Davis is probably um, one of the leading hubs, I would say, of the agrochemical industry in terms of the money that gets spent there and the influence that that campus has over public views on pesticides 
and also GMOs and biotechnology. So just in general, what we see is a lot of support for GMOs, support for pesticides, defense of pesticides, and like I said, confusing the issues to sort of make it about something else if it turns out that a pesticide is a problem. And with bees, it's let's blame it on the mites. Tell me a little more, Stacey, about what this relationship looks like. Um, you say that, that um, research is being funded, but uh, also are, there, are, are, are experts being flown to conferences? Are they acting as spokespeople? Tell me a little more about how this, this relationship works between industry and academia. Yeah. Well, first of all, the money trail can be hard to find. A lot of corporate funding goes through the university foundations, which are unfortunately do not have to disclose where their money comes from or what it's used for. A lot of students are fighting against um, this across the country, you know, demanding information from their universities about who's funding them and what is being promised in exchange. Um, so it can be difficult to find out exactly how much, but we know it's millions upon millions at each land-grant university. So all the major universities studying agriculture are getting money um, from the chemical companies. So that is sometimes goes towards specific research. What we've investigated is what are the relationships between um, academics who are very prominent in putting themselves out in the public as independent experts. And, you know, we noticed, I, I worked on the GMO labeling initiative in California in 2012, and we saw a very coordinated, um, sophisticated effort of um, sort of hammering the entire state with consistent talking points coming from many different areas, but the pr university professors sort of in the lead. And questions were raised then, you know, are these folks working with Monsanto? Is Monsanto providing talking points to these professors? We wanted to investigate that. And so that was one question we had when we began doing the Freedom of Information Act requests and gathering documents. What we found is that in many, many cases, um, corporations are funding and enlisting prominent academics to act as independent experts and largely pushing corporate talking points. So sometimes that can involve direct exchange of money, like paying for travel, setting up speaking engagements, you know, give, sort of setting up side income opportunities for professors, whether it's through front groups or funding university programs. But we see very close collaboration. So, for example, emails where it's clear that Monsanto executives are assigning articles to professors, suggesting headlines, in some cases drafting the articles outright, which professors then run under their own names, um, editing them. So, you know, real clear, like, this is the message and we're going to be consistent about it. Um, none of these relationships are disclosed. And then in addition to that, the you know, paying for travel, speaking engagements, sometimes, some cases funding third-party groups. Um, we have one example of a University of Illinois professor whose university was getting tens of millions of dollars over several years from the agrochemical industry. He himself was having maybe, you know, $50,000 for travel and expenses, um, and then setting up a side group which claimed to, be claimed to be independent. It was called Academics Review. On their website, 
claims 15 times to be independent, no relationship with industry. But the emails that we found show clearly this professor setting up the idea with Monsanto executives and PR operatives specifically to attack the organic industry, attack critics of genetically engineered foods, and find money for this group while keeping all of the fingerprints and connections to the companies hidden. So it was a deliberate front group. I mean, that's a very clear example of setting out to influence public opinion directly between professors and corporations while hiding those relationships so that people think it's an independent um, opinion. Now, getting back to the bees and neonicotinoids, have you found anything um, uh, along these lines related to to bees, the neonicotinoids, UC Davis, uh, anything specific there? Well, you know, Friends of the Earth has done some really good work on this, and they looked at, in a report called Follow the Honey, Seven Ways That Pesticide Companies Are Spinning the Bee Crisis. So they really looked at, you know, how are companies trying to own the dialogue on what's happening with the bees. And they do it with very aggressive strategies and very cynical strategies, I think. So they, they'll do a PR blitz about how much they care about the bees. As Terry mentioned, you know, bee care centers being set up by Bayer. I think they had a $12 million bee care center to, you know, run programs about protecting bees and whatever, educational projects for kids and these sorts of things. But while they do that, they're at the same time creating distractions and blaming anything but the pesticides. So as I mentioned, manufacturing doubt around the science. And just as an example of that, there was a really important, I think phenomenal story in the New York Times. This was in uh, 2016 by Danny Hakim. And he he talked to uh, professors who had been contracted to do research for Syngenta. Um, He interviewed a guy, for example, named James Cresswell, and he was an expert in flowers and bees at the University of Exeter. So he was critical of pesticides. He was critical of the bees be deaths in the first place. So those are really the two themes that you'll you'll hear. Like it's not the pesticide and the bees really aren't dying anyway. There's just a constant drumbeat in the media on those two themes. So where does that drumbeat come from? Well Professor Creswell here was um, critical of of the pesticides and the idea that bees were dying. And so he was contracted by Syngenta to do some studies on the varroa mite. Basically with the idea that, yes, it's the mites and not the pesticides causing um, the problem. Well, his research didn't actually show that. It was not... His initial research, which was in 2012, was kind of undercutting those concerns that it was the mites' fault. So then he started to run into problems with Syngenta. And this is what he said to the New York Times reporter. Syngenta clearly has an agenda, according to his experience with them, and this is the agenda. It's the Varroa, stupid. So that was a quote that the scientist said to the New York Times. This is what he was hearing from Syngenta. We've contracted you to do research, and this is what your research is supposed to find. And if it didn't find that, which it didn't, let's figure out ways to make it find that. That was the conversation that they had. So that's the kind of thing that goes on uh, at the research level. Yeah. And then at the at the PR level, you, you know, we see 
sort of all the typical tobacco tactics. They spinning the science, trying to put experts on payrolls and co-opt groups that talk about bees. You know, I've heard some things about the beekeepers really don't want to talk too much about pesticides because they may have some financial um, blowback from that. Probably Terry could talk a little bit more about that. You know, attacking anything that has to do with policy and basically shutting down policy, um, which has been a lot easier to do in the U.S. than in, in countries like the EU, where they have had been able to ban neonicotinoids, and they are seeing bee populations come back. Terry, yeah, do you want to say anything about, um, about what uh, Stacy just said? So I've got a little bit of experience fighting the tobacco industry in Los Angeles in the 90s uh, when... Uh, cigarettes were first banned in restaurants. I spoke there at city council. And so at that time, I was looking into tactics. So I recognized those tactics um, in the current climate around neonics and bees. So it's very important that, that you own the narrative. And the narrative, of course, has been bought by, the, um, by Bayer and Syngenta. Over the years, they've committed, I think, an absolute assault on on the narrative um, and owning it. And the way that they've done it, just in my personal experience, is, you know, I belong to beekeepers associations here in the Bay Area, and you're really not allowed to talk about neonics. You're not allowed to talk about it. Uh, it's changed. I think that um, the um, local beekeepers associations have been informed that they're becoming blatantly um they're they're covering for the industry because you're allowed to mention it now but lightly and uh but before like a couple of years ago the trolls would come out and just hammer you if you talked about about um pesticides at all so that's um a complete bully tactic that's really common on the internet now but there's other things too. So to back up what Stacy was talking about, the universities, I'm looking at a note from uh, an email from Eric Musson of UC Davis. He's now retired, but he ran the, um, the apiculture department there and was really at the helm while neonics were flooding the market and unchecked, unchecked chemicals coming onto the market at the time when bees were dying. Eric Musson was running that department. And an email that I'm looking at right now from him, he's heading up a conference. And uh, it's an interesting conference. It's got the usual, you know, cast of characters like, you know, Bayer Syngenta, USDA is funding the whole conference. And typically when you find a conference like that, it's, <coughs> it's very industry heavy with uh, their message. So obviously he's getting pushback from a lot of different people. And um, he said in this email, and I'll forward it to you, he said, he is, this is a quote, I'm going to try to convince representatives from the major ag chemical companies to share with us their techniques for determining toxicity and risk to honeybees and of using their products around apiaries. This is not meant to be an open attack on the companies and I will be moderating, moderating the panel tightly. Protesters will be kept outside. He says, we are looking for the truth behind the research and development scenes and uh, not an opportunity to throw rocks. So 
what he's doing here, in in my opinion, is um, again, it's the same thing. He's running interference. Uh, just the fact that he's saying that the chemical companies determine the toxicity to bees, I find hilarious because how can the manufacturer of a poison be trusted to determine what we are all thinking and taking as a standard as to what is toxic to bees? And if you look at pollinators, the whole pollinator system, the standard of thinking, which is via UC Davis, is completely flawed because they're dying and the pesticide industry is telling us how much we can how much products the bees can ingest before it's deadly. You know, I went to a um, a beekeepers association meeting in San Mateo recently, and there was a representative, um, a researcher who was fully paid by Bayer. Bayer was all over his paperwork and documentation, and he was there with a couple of local beekeepers who work consistently with Bayer, and admit it quietly. And what he was talking about was how much imidacloprid bees can ingest before it's fatal immediately or later on in the hive. And it was just amazing to me that the company gets to determine how much poison is okay. And uh, I just keep seeing this same thing over and over and over again, where the chemical <laughs> industry gets to tell us how much poison is okay for us to ingest and bees to ingest. And uh, again, it's just not working at all. But uh, yeah, and going back to, you know, something else, it's very, very normal for humans to think about themselves first. We're, we're slightly selfish species. And I think that's going to be our downfall. The more generous species like bees are going to last longer than us because they're not as troubled <laughs> by their greed um or i mean they don't have it but there's really something interesting about the whole food system that we all relate to and talk about all the time and i just want to encourage people when they think about food to include in their in their thoughts other species and what their food may be because it's not necessarily ours so you know what i'm working really really hard on is encouraging people to think about trees that don't produce fruit, that humans don't eat, but to think about the importance of trees to feed all pollinators, because just a flowering ornamental tree is a great way we can save all the pollinators, but only, only if they're not treated with these poisons. So planting a tree in your yard that's been treated with um, a neonic is deadly for several years. There's no point in doing something. You're beautifying, you're attracting nature, and then you're killing it as soon as the tree flowers. So, you know, if you really think about it, tree nurseries in California are very, very tied into the pesticide industry. And I called all the major tree nurseries in northern, southern California, eastern Colorado, and southern Oregon. And they're all regularly and systematically using some sort of a neonic on their trees. So, you know, you buy a tree from a nursery or you buy a tree from your garden center, it's been pre-treated and that lasts for years. So first, second, third, fourth bloom of those trees, it's toxic. And it goes unnoticed 
who's paying attention to the bumblebees under the tree? Or, you know, who knows what, what's happening when the hummingbird goes back to its nest, you know, and has drank all this toxic nectar gutation. You know, that's, that's really an important point. And also, when I did make these calls, more than once, the operations manager said that, that neonics are okay, because that's what they got from UC Davis. Right. And the other thing that you often hear is that, of course, if we don't use the neonics, we're going to have to use something more toxic. Any, Stacy or Tra- uh, Terry, um, either of you have anything? How would you respond to, to that? Can I say it? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I think that um, that kind of bully tactic needs to be investigated. If that's how they're threatening our food system, that's, I would take it as a threat. And, um, you know, and I know that that's probably not going to happen legislatively, but I think we should really look at that, that that's the way that they behave regularly. Like if we don't like it too bad, or if you fight it enough, we're going to give you something even worse to shut you down. I just think that we should really look at our food system and see who's running the show and decide, you know, at some point that it's got to be organic because organic is Organic works, it's sustainable. Pesticide, conventional, industrial, agribusiness is so not sustainable. UN says so, there's so many reports, and it's just common sense. If you're poisoning the entire biosphere, your system is not working. And I think that, you know, the argument to give back to these companies is, okay, neonics are thousands of times stronger than DDT and look how that ended. And the fact that they're systemic and persistent is the problem. If we could get rid of the systemics, that's Roundup is the same. It's systemic and all the fungicides systemic. So anything that comes along to take a nibble or a drink is dead. So it's those two things, the strength of the neonics and the systemic and persistence of the of these products that really need to be addressed. If you're spraying something on the leaves to get rid of the aphids, you know, chances are it'll go away, but this stuff does not go away. It stays. Yeah. No, I mean, that's all very well put Terry. And I, I mean, I would just add that in the big picture, we are making decisions about our food system in this country based on what the chemical companies want for their profits on pesticides. I mean, that is just the bottom line because they have so much power at the regulatory level and at the at the propaganda campaigns that they're running to sort of justify keeping this system going. And we'll, we'll need to use something else more toxic as a common theme, and we hear that a lot. That's what they said about glyphosate. Well, if we genetically engineer nearly all of our corn and soy to withstand glyphosate, that's okay because glyphosate is less bad than other pesticides. But what has happened in the years since we've turned over nearly all of our agricultural corn and soy that's grown in this country to Roundup-ready GMO crops, glyphosate use has increased hugely it's just getting sprayed everywhere. It's the most widely used agricultural chemical in the world now. Um, and it turns out 
now the World Health Organization's cancer panel says it's a carcinogen. You know, thousands of farmers are suing Monsanto for that who have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma or their family members. So huge health concerns, using more and more of it. It's not even working anymore because the weeds find a way around it. And so now they're needing to go back to older, more toxic pesticides, dicamba, 2,4-D, and trying to get approval to genetically engineer crops to withstand those chemicals, but also treating seeds with neonics, the fungicides. So it's a layered system of many different chemicals being used. And we call it the pesticide treadmill, you know, the constant need to keep using more as the weeds find a way around it or as chemicals stop working or as science catches up with it and becomes too um, much for the companies to resist, which eventually does happen, happened with DDT. That's probably, you know, are they even developing any safer pesticides? Um, The glyphosate example is really interesting in that it was sold for so long as it's less bad than other chemicals, um, but as it turns out to have a lot of concerns associated with it, there doesn't seem to be any new safer chemicals in the pipeline. They're suggesting going back to the older, you know, known to be toxic ones. So it's just not a system that's working well. And I think despite all of the money, all of the, you know, um, push coming from universities to keep the system going, people are waking up to it and and they don't want it. So we're seeing continued growth in organic. Um, We're seeing really a consumer movement that's gotten so big and powerful that companies don't know what to do about it and the big food companies are scrambling. So there's a lot of dynamic changes in the marketplace that I think are really positive um, and more people are choosing organic and that really is a solution that you can take into your own home and your own life and not only with food and what we're feeding our kids because of course much of the food is also laced with pesticides um, But choosing organic also helps the farmers, the farmland, farm communities, pollinators. Um, So there are great impacts to choosing organic that go beyond our own family. And also, especially regarding neonics, this is so important when it comes to yard plants that we're buying. You know, trees is a whole nother issue that really is daunting (laughs) that Terry is bringing up. I think it's so important. Um, But one thing you can certainly do is buy organic foods and crops for your garden and plants. And sometimes that can be like a tiny, tiny section of the, you know, the plant store is organic, so there's not even that many options. And then, and I've gone to plant stores and asked them, you know, are your plants being treated with neonics or what? And they usually have no idea. So organic is important for so many reasons. You know, and tying into that, what Stacy just said is really important. The garden center policy around neonics um, is, is blatantly and deliberately confusing you know, they don't respond when, when I've contacted them, they don't really want to know. And it just feels because it's consistent. It feels like it's the, it's the message that's been given to them to use. Uh, it's deliberately confusing. And again, and that's the same as the tobacco industry. You know, it's like, basically they're saying baffle them with bull because that's, that's the way that it translates. Now, what about the idea of labeling? Because wouldn't shouldn't we as consumers, <clears throat> excuse me, have the right to to have a label on our nursery plants? Um, has, okay, has, so and, can I speak yeah, to that? Yeah, go ahead. Has there been an attempt to um, get yes. a labeling law going? 
Yes. So April 2016 and again, April 2017 in the California state legislature in Sacramento, there was two different ban- um, Senate bills, uh, Senate Bill 1282 and Senate Bill 602. They basically said the same thing. They were a labeling bill and it was going to label just one neonic, and that is imidacloprid. And it would have required labeling on any plant that went to a garden center. And it was killed both years in committee. And guess who killed it? The biggest killer that day was the California Beekeepers Association. I was there. Um, I took cards. (laughs) It was crazy. So, and I've got that in writing too, where they came out against this labeling bill because what happened was it was Senator Allen, I think of Santa Monica wrote the bill and Senator Leno in 2016, he's now been replaced by Senator Weiner from San Francisco. And um, anyway, the bill said the same thing. It was, it had two simple parts. And the first one I've already said, labeling of any plant in California treated with imidacloprid. And then the second part was going to ban the sale of imidacloprid to the general public in garden centers. So the pesticide industry was all over this. They came out, you know, that they were basically saying that, you know, because of the, um, the, uh, um, the citrus psyllid in Southern California, that we had to have neonics. And essentially we're saying that they wanted people to be citizen exterminators in their backyard, killing this insect by using imidacloprid, right? So it's completely ridiculous. Citrus farmers in in Florida, whose crops are decimated by this product, I mean by this insect, um, have said that it didn't work. The protocol, the insecticide protocol of neonics did not work. They did it and it didn't work. So it doesn't work, but that didn't matter to the, the representatives from the industry that were there force feeding this message through fear about the citrus psyllid. So, but they didn't recommend that the state, a treatment policy for the citrus psyllid, they just wanted little old ladies and little old men to go to um, their home deep or go to uh, their garden center, pick up these toxins that are so strong that professionals have to be licensed and regulated and trained before they can use them. But I can go and I can, I can't even read the label, it's so microscopic but I can go and I can spray the hell out of my backyard and that's okay. So that was one part of it. And then the other part that they, um, they made a big deal about was that um, the general public needed to be able to purchase these products as much as they wanted. And there should be no limit on their sale to the general public. So that, um, but the California California beekeepers Association voted with, Bayer and Syngenta to prevent this ban on this very, very toxic product. Um, And that was fascinating. You know, their lobbyist came in the room. He stood with the pesticide industry and voted against the ban. And then he ran out of the room and I grabbed his sleeve. I was like, I need your card. I wouldn't let go of his sleeve until he gave me a card. And then he ran out of the room. And then Senator Leno, about 10 minutes later, he goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, bring that guy back in. He said, the beekeepers are okay with this product. So they brought the guy back in, the lobbyist, and he said he didn't know how 
like who on the board of the California Beekeepers Association voted with uh, with them. He didn't know how it was. It came up or anything. He just said it was an 11th hour vote that came up the night before this first committee meeting. So they voted on it at the pressure of the pesticide industry. Duh, who else? So um, that's how that that went. And that ties back in to beekeepers that are commercial, you know, that are industrial, are not they're not the right voice to listen to. They get all the credibility and they're connected with the universities. And the bottom line is they're business associations. They're there to make money. And if they're making money from the pesticide industry or from the downfall of bees, that's not a good enough reason to give them all the voice. In fact, that's the exact exact wrong reason to give them all the voice, which is what they, they enjoy right now. Yeah, Stacy, do you have any experience with the Beekeepers Association or other kind of industry groups like that um, advocating for pesticides? Well, I don't know as much about the beekeepers. I think that's a fascinating story, though, and I wish that had come out at the time in the media, and it really should be investigated. What's going on with the beekeepers? Who's funding them? Who's calling the shots? How did that decision happen? Um, and I think if this comes up again, you know, certainly getting more eyes on what's going on there would be really important. Um, you know, you asked earlier, Eric, about the transparency and labeling and at least giving people the right to know. And I think that's where all of this has to start. We absolutely have the right to know about what's in our food. GMOs should be labeled. Most people want them labeled. Um, these pesticides at the store should be labeled for what they are. These products are killing bees. Um, some voluntary actions at stores are starting to make that happen after a lot of pressure from consumer groups. And I know you probably have opinions about how effective this all is, Terry, but at least it's a start with Home Depot and Lowe's saying they are going to start to phase out some of the products and do some labeling. Um, that's really important. And at least, as I said, a first step, and it's really just a first step, but giving people the right to know about what's going on with these products and how concerning they are. And what we're trying to do at U.S. Right to Know is bring transparency to what's going on behind the scenes in universities. And it's really what we've uncovered is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, and we're hoping there'll be a lot more info coming. We're actually suing UC Davis uh, because they've refused to turn over documents. Again, these are you know publicly funded universities. We're paying um, for the work that goes on at these universities. So people absolutely have a right to know about how they're being influenced by corporations on issues such as our food system. So that lawsuit's ongoing and we hope it's going to generate you know, documents and information, more information about funding and how things are happening behind the scenes at UC Davis. Is it budget information? Is that the documents you're after? What What's the nature of those documents in the lawsuit? We've, we've looked at, we've done FOIA requests for trying to specifically ascertain how academics, so professors or academic departments are working with the chemical corporations and their PR firms. So what's the relationship there? Are they working together on PR campaigns? What's the money flow? How much money is going to the universities? You know, what's the written documentation about that? what that money is, is to be used for? And it's difficult to get at. 
you know, there was, I was just looking up a, an article that was written about UC Davis. This was in 2004, this pair of reporters at the Sacramento Bee really, they did a five-part series on biotech agrochemical industry funding at UC Davis. And it's a phenomenal story. You, I can't even find it online anymore, unfortunately. These well, stories well, sort of get taken offline, but I, I have a hard copy. Um, but just to sort of read you a couple of paragraphs about kind of how the funding works and why it's so difficult to say, you know, exactly how much money is going to these universities because they're just funding lots of different programs and lots of different creative ways. Um, so I'm reading from the article now, and it says, you name it, and the biotechnology, and I'm going to say slash agrochemical, because it's really one and the same. The seed companies, the companies doing genetic engineering of seeds and that research are the chemical companies. It's Monsanto, Syngenta, Dow, Bayer, and the, you know the big six, and now they're trying to merge into the big three. So this is serious corporate concentration of seeds and the pesticides. And of course, there's a lot of uh, profit involved in engineering the seeds to be used with the pesticides and thereby selling more chemicals. Um, so it, they wrote, you name it, and biotechnology companies help pay for it at UC Davis. Laboratory studies, scholarships, postdoctoral student salaries, professors' travel expenses, even the campus utility bill. Some professors earn extra money, up to $2,000 a month, consulting for such companies on the side. So you know, it's just pretty pervasive. And it gets to um, not only the kind of research that people are doing or how they talk about it, the kind of promotional activities people do, the conferences that colleges set up, and, and really, as Terry was explaining, tightly controlled narratives that, that push a certain agenda. Um, and this was all in 2004. So, you know, many years ago, and of course, that was right in the middle of the Bush administration, which by the way, made massive public funding cuts to land-grant universities, thereby opening the door much, much wider uh, for corporations to step in and fill that gap. Of course, they will say, well, science is objective, right? So this, these, this funding does not influence our, our research. And so, that which, but of course, it leaves the question now: if if this is true, how much when when evaluating scientific research, what am I going to to do now? I mean, do I trust any of it? How do I know? Stacy, yeah. uh, do you know about that um, that uh, journal Science that just came out? You know about that article? I'm not sure which one you mean exactly. Okay, so it's one of the most reputable scientific um, journals on the planet. And um, Bayer paid them to, to do a study on neonics and bees. And the study said that neonics, you know, it said a lot, but it said that neonics were bad for bees. And Bayer was the funder. It was either Bayer or Syngenta, excuse me if I'm getting it wrong. It's one of the two. So, but what happened next was really, really important. They, Bayer, the company that paid for it, was pressuring the scientists to um, to release the information to them first so that they could counter it, basically. And that's what the scientists were saying. That was one of the most interesting things about this was the pressure that they were under to control the release of this information. And I'll send that to you, Eric. I'll send you that article. Great. There's been so many because the, these are leading, leading scientists who came up with answers 
that the corporation that funded the study did not want released. So, uh, and the scientists spoke out about it loudly, that they were really being pressured. Uh, and then they were discredited. So that's the same thing. That's the type of tactics that these industries use. It's based, you know, it's... And as to how, how people navigate what's true, I mean, that's really difficult. I think it's important, first of all, to know all of this is going on behind the scenes and really does have an influence on the public dialogue around these issues, on how the media covers it, on how policymakers respond. Science is supposed to be objective, but of course there are many, many ways to manipulate it from what questions do you ask, you know, how how you go about answering them, the interpretation of results, which as we've heard that example Terry just gave, the example that the New York Times wrote about, you know, oh, we didn't like the answer, let's go back and do it a different way so we get the answer we want. That, of course that goes on. Um, so I always just keep coming back to first step transparency, like let's show and keep talking about what's going on behind the scenes, what the relationships are, the incredible influence that the pesticide companies have over our universities. And as to what we do about it, you know, that's a, we, we have a lot of <laughs> questions in this country that we're facing about how to use our power, how to basically have a democracy anymore where people in the public good do have a say in what happens policy-wise. You know, we're seeing the decimation of public agencies that uh, have not even in the first place been living up to their their mandate to protect the public good but are now getting completely raided and dismantled even further so you know how are we going to respond to all of this how are we going to fight for our collective power as citizens and as a democracy i think these are questions that all of us need to be asking right now and there are no easy answers but the, the good news is that we can, all of us, do something in our personal lives to really uh, make a difference because I think it does matter when we uh, buy organic food, when we talk to our friends about it, when we make sure that the plants that we're buying at garden centers have not been treated with neonics. Um, ask the questions at stores. Make sure the retailers know that people care about this and are interested in it. If they don't have the answers, you know, buy organic. Ask them to stock more organic. I think this is something that a lot of gardeners don't think about. Um, they think, well, maybe that's one place I can cut a corner is not buying organic flowers for my garden or, you know, plants because I'm not eating them. But the bees are eating them. So it's really important that we create safe spaces for bees in our own gardens and at the community level. So, Stacy, where can people find out more about your work and about U.S. Right to Know? So we have tons of information on our website, which is usrtk.org, uh, about our investigations and what we're finding. Um, I really encourage folks to sign up for our newsletter at usrtk.org. We send it out about once a month with all the updates. We're doing lots of work to expose what's going on with glyphosate. We have all of the court documents posted on our website from the discovery that's going on with the farmers and their families that are suing Monsanto. That's opened up a huge trove of documents. Uh, so we've been posting those on our website. It's really a great place to go for people who want to do research, who want to kind of find out who the players are in the university uh, slash pesticide industry. Um, force and also just you know figure out 
um, how you can get involved and what you can do. So we try to, you know, build a community of research and information sharing so that we can all uh, know about these issues, share the info with our friends and um, do what we can to take steps in our own life while figuring out how we're going to build the political power to take our country back from the corporate interests. And Terry, your website is? I'm uh, urbanbsanfrancisco.com. And um, one of the programs that I've been working on, one of the campaigns that's very, very, it's getting some traction here in San Francisco, and I want to take it uh, statewide, is an awareness of how important trees are to all pollinators. And I've been working with the city of San Francisco, going to the Department of the Environment and the urban forestry meetings for going on two years, uh, because our city is going to be planting 55,000 new saplings over the next several years. So I checked into the sourcing of those trees. I called all the vendors that the city's buying from, and I would say 75% of those are going to be treated with neonics. So my campaign is to educate the city on why they can't do this and to create create a, uh, a source for the city to buy from that's a better quality, highly nutritious, diverse canopy that will become this canopy for the future. And so, you know, I'm lucky because I've only got a seven by seven square mile radius to worry about. I don't have to think about what's going on in the whole country because I would lose my mind. But um, this seven by seven, my goal 50 years from now is going to be an oasis for pollinators. You're going to see birds, songbirds, hummingbirds, butterflies, dragonflies, all the beneficials come back to this region because of what we're doing uh, right now. So the city's listening. I've had two um, personal or a personal meeting with them just this last week, and then another. They had it on an agenda item uh, previously, and they're they're. I'm not going to let them do this, you know, because they're a city, they're government, they're legislators. They're saying, well, we've heard that you know pesticides are not the problem, that it's mites. You know, I'm not. I'm holding their feet to the fire. I'm not going to let them off the hook on this because we've got all the documentation, we've got all the peer review studies that show that it is neonics and the benefits of what we could create with a pesticide-free urban canopy, urban forest. You can't deny that. They can't deny that. That's why they're even listening. So uh, it's a it's a good campaign, and I see it. I'm going to create a template that can be placed onto Los Angeles. San Diego, Sacramento, because it's working and it has to work. We've got to do better than what we have. Um, oh, yeah. And the other thing I was going to say is um, I'm finding farmers that are interested in this and are planting biodynamic, all organic trees for pollinators. So these are flowering, ornamental, not fruit or nuts for humans. These are just for pollinators and, um, you know, getting a, a diverse I'm talking with them about planting diverse species so that there's a lot of different nutrition at different times of the year, which is what pollinators need. They have different needs during out throughout the year. So, um, yeah, that's my work. <laughs> Can I just say, I want to also say that I, I so honor you, Terry, for what you're doing and also, Eric, for your work. And the, when I think about all this stuff, it can be so overwhelming 
to really see what's going on. But then I see someone like Terry just stepping forward, you know, driven by love of bees in all species and saying, I'm going to take this on and I'm going to make it happen. And I totally believe that you can do it, Terry. And that's my hope for the future is that just people stepping forward to in doing what we can do to make a difference in our part of the world and then just sharing the knowledge we have and supporting each other in that work. So if there's anything I can do to support you, please let me know. And thank you for being such an inspiring voice and for standing up for change. That's awesome. Yes. Thank you both so much. We only scratched the surface because there's a million other questions. We didn't even get to cosmetics or Coca-Cola or all those other topics. <laughs> we'll so, have to talk again. Yeah, I'd love to. So uh, uh, thank you. Thank you so much, both of you. Um, is there anything else uh, that, that we didn't discuss that we need to? Or um, There is one thing I wanted to bring up, if you don't mind. Yeah, um, go ahead, Terry. So Eco Farm, um, if we could put that on, oh, yes. so, we're sending a package about this conference or about the speaking, you know, date. Yeah, why, why don't you? Uh, yeah, so Terry, what, why don't you say something about Eco Farm, like the Eco Farm conference? Yeah. Okay, so the Eco Farm conference in Carmel every January. It's a uh, it's a very very important um, sustainability conference that digs deep into the organic issue uh they've got amazing speakers every year um and this year's is it includes uh stacy um ame code from xerxes society susan kegley of pesticide research institute and me we're going to be speaking about this issue and about the influence of corporations on our agriculture through the universities, and then specifically how neonics definitely affect bees and how widespread it is. So EcoFarm is, a, is a, an amazing conference, and I really hope people will consider going there or at least buying the seminar online so they can listen to it if you can't make it to Carmel. Okay, great. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. You're very welcome. That was Stacy Malkin and Terry Oxford. Stacy's website is usrtk.org. Terry's website is urbanbsf.com. Thanks again to our Patreon subscribers for supporting this podcast. To leave a question for the Root Simple Podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. You can have our podcasts automatically downloaded for free by subscribing in the iTunes Store or on Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, please share this podcast in social media. You can support the Root Simple Podcast through our Patreon campaign or through a one-time PayPal donation. You can find those links on the right side of our blog, which is rootsimple.com. You can also purchase one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. Thank you.